There's something really curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. Nominal, nominal, Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well it's that time again, it's the beginning of the month and we're going straight into August. So it's very very quickly coming up to the time of year when it uh, starts to get a bit darker. So the Sky Guides are going to start getting a bit more interesting as we go through the last few months of the year. But obviously we'll just talk about that a little bit more. We've got Ross Ockham from UK Astronomy, how are you doing sir? Very busy, even though the skies, you know, aren't that dark anymore <laughs> not for a few no, months well, by the end of August things will start to change won't they I mean September it'll be about half past eight-ish when it starts getting dark we're over the hill slowly on the way back down it looks like the planets are starting to come up a bit earlier now as well so they're not all horribly horribly early yeah that's for sure Normally at the beginning of the show, during the intro, we, I normally ask Ross what's been going on. Now, I know one thing that you've been involved in is that you've been awarded what's known as a Points of Light Award by the Prime Minister for your work with UK Astronomy. I have, yeah. Another one of my wife's doings. Again, no real idea it was going to happen. Didn't even know it was on the cards. And then literally get an email saying, you've been awarded a Points of Light by the Prime Minister. And I'm like, you what? So again, I then have to go and talk to Frank and go, is this you again? Oh yeah, that was me, yeah. I nominated you and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, you need to stop this. I'm going to end up getting a really big head if you carry on. My ego's going to go. <laughs> I mean, for the charity, it's fantastic. I always say, love him or loathe him, because I know how people feel about prime ministers and whether they're good or bad and that. It's about the actual award and the, the fact that, you know, I, our charity's been given this, which I think is, you know, it's amazing for the charity. It's absolutely fantastic. And all the volunteers and everyone who supported us, it's a really cool thing to have, I think. For those of you that are not in the know, every week the Prime Minister recognises an inspirational volunteer who is making a change in their community. Now, the Points of Light Award was first established by President George Bush Sr. back in 1990. Over 6,000 US points of lights have been recognised in the US. Now, the points of light in the UK was developed in partnership with the US programme and launched in the Cabinet Room in 10 Downing Street in 2014. Since then, hundreds of people have been named by points of light by the Prime Minister, highlighting the enormous array of inspirational volunteering across the length and breadth of Britain. UK points of lights are fundraising, uh, awareness raising, problem solving heroes who have all had an idea that they have decided to make a reality and their stories can inspire thousands more people to get involved or start their own initiatives, which is really cool. Yeah, well, what, what more can I say? <laughs> Apparently I've done something. Well, you have. I mean, you, you had an idea, you put that idea into motion and it's just organically grown. Yeah, it's just it's just grown with, with the people, I guess. That's it now. I don't want any more awards. I'm happy. <laughs> I said that on the last one. <laughs> I said it on this one. And I know my wife will not be. I think she seems to think that I deserve these sort of things and it's nice for... I think she sees all the hard work that goes in by everyone. And when we get something like this, it's almost like someone just coming back to you and going, well done, you have made a difference. Which, you know, to us then, you get that little sense of, oh, you know what? I might have made that little bit of difference in the world, made someone maybe going to science or something who might cure something or do something cool. 
So, what else have you been up to? I know you had an event that we mentioned last month that uh, didn't go ahead. Yeah, well, to be fair, the month didn't go very well at the beginning. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll tell you what happened. So, we spoke about the Parks Trust event we were going to do. Yeah. Where we were going to go out and we are going to show them the sunspots and all the stuff there. It's meant to be an awesomely sunny day. It's all going to be brilliant. Nature day, all cool. As the great British weather is, rain, clouds horrible weather it's quite windy as well actually i remember so i woke up in the morning and i thought yeah we're not going to be able to go out there i can't take the van onto a field where it's really wet awning out blowing around <laughs> telescopes getting wet and soaked i'm like damn it this isn't going to work so unfortunately we couldn't make that so i messaged everyone i knew and just kind of said you know really sorry i don't think we're going to make it today we, we, they knew that anyway they knew if it was going to rain we couldn't do it and then uh, from that we meant to be going away to wales to have a bit of us time, a bit of holiday, so we can get away from everything. <laughs> just get away in Wales with our friends, have a few drinks down the pub and that and just chill. The plan was to go to Telford, which is about two hours away. We were gonna stay overnight there so we didn't have a really long drive. Enjoy an evening there, just me and the wife, and then continue our journey the next day to Wales. So we got to Telford, and then just as we unpacked everything into the hotel room, we got a text saying one of the friends there has got COVID, but he's testing again tonight just to check. And we're like, oh no. We went to a restaurant, had a meal. Yeah, he's got COVID. And then literally a few hours later, I've got COVID too. I felt for them, but in a way I was kind of like felt for myself, which is a little bit selfish. So like, right, we can't go to Wales. So what we're going to do. We can either try and go somewhere, but the problem was we packed for staying around someone's house, not a hotel or camping or anything like that. So we weren't prepared. So I sat there and went, well, let's just, let's just go back home. We cancelled the dog lady who was looking after our dogs for us, bless her. And we thought, right, we'll go back home. So it's a weekend. And we were like, right, what are we going to do? So randomly, for some reason, I don't know why, I just went, we've got like a local, uh, a little group with all the people we met during the Jubilee party that we had a couple of months back i just went in there and said right who fancies a bit of mooning because the moon was up they all said they wanted to do some astronomy and have a look out in the close so i literally said right i'm going to go out there do some food you guys are welcome to join us we'll have a few drinks i'll get the telescopes out the moon will be up we can have a look at that as it gets darker there'll be a few stars as well you can see and man loads of people turned up i obviously didn't put it in our UK Astronomy Facebook group because there'd probably be thousands of people. So my archery squad, a few of them turned up. The actual lady who taught us and her family turned up. We had a few of the neighbours turn up. A couple of the people in our uh, local stargazing group turned up as well. It was awesome. So from like a complete failure, we ended up having a really cool night, a few drinks and looking at the moon and some stars. Out of failure can come success if you think the right way and go, right, I'm not going to let it get me down. Let's do something. So at least something came out of it. Yeah, they got more out of it because they got to see things they'd never seen. For me, it was just another astronomy event, which is the whole idea of going to Wales was to not do it. But, you know, I can't help myself for some reason. Got told off by the wife. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had uh, Janelle, the NASA lady. They had Hazley Fest, wasn't it? That was what it was called. Yeah, because she works for a school and it's called that. And they have like a sleepover where all the kids, I think, that are coming up into the school next year, they all come along and it's kind of almost like a sort of welcome to the school and they all do cool you know, events and stuff and activities during the day. Some of them camp outside in tents, some of them go home, some sleep in the hall, I think, inside and they just do loads of stuff. So naturally, being a NASA lady, Janelle was like, do you want to come along and show the kids whatever's up at about 11 o'clock at night? And I was like, yeah, all right then. You know, if it's not raining. So we, me and Frankie went there about seven, had a picnic, had some stuff, set all the scopes up. And then literally something like 250 kids just came <laughs> screaming across the field. <laughs> all wanting to have a look at stuff. 
I think they need about half an hour or an hour to actually look at anything. So they're all, you know, queuing up, looking through scopes, looking through binoculars. Every bit of equipment I had was out learning to look at stuff. And yeah, from what I heard, they had a great time. And then I even got a pencil from Janelle that said, I survived Hazley Fest, <laughs> which is really cool. So yeah, that was that was a bit manic, but it was fun. We did enjoy it. It was clear, which is quite lucky. And then I think the last one we did was a, a place called The Pod in Burton Latimer. A great guy called, he's actually a member in our group, Michael Scott. And he saw that I was going around visiting Hall to find out stuff you know for the planetarium that hopefully we're going to get soon and just to do any events in different areas around us to rent halls ourselves if there's no event going on in a week or two then I can go right well I'll do our own one and he messaged saying oh I've got a hall did you want to come have a look so we went and had a look at the pod saw what he did there and he was like yeah let's do it let's just do a talk during the day and then later on in the year maybe do an evening one so it was really nice so I went there spoke to like it was like mums dads and kids just all sat there listening all about the solar system the planets and things like that and then we got up we had to look at all the telescopes, I showed them how a telescope works, you know, showed them that some have mirrors, some have reflectors, some, you know, are refractors, some have lenses, got all the binoculars out as well, so even the huge one, the poor kids are like holding these huge binoculars, <laughs> having a look up, and one of them said, I can see through that person's window, and I was like, no, 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 no don't do that. <laughs> Don't look for people's windows because I get in trouble for that. I was like, luckily the sun was completely the other way, so they weren't looking anywhere near the sun or anything like that, and all the blinds were pulled, so it was quite cool. So they really enjoyed themselves, and uh, yeah, they all said thank you, and hopefully we'll be doing another one in November when it's dark. So I think we'll leave it there, and then we'll go into the main part of the show. So we're going to have a short break, and we'll come straight back. you could put on a special pair of glasses and look up into the night sky, you would see something amazing. A sky full of exoplanets, planets orbiting stars beyond our own solar system. A team of superhero space telescopes, in a sense, has done just that. Using powerful technology, they've peered into space, discovering thousands of these distant planets and unveiling their secrets. The first exoplanet discoveries were very down-to-earth. They were made from the ground. Pioneering new techniques, ground-based telescopes began capturing evidence of giant, scorchingly hot planets around other stars. But to see exoplanets more clearly, including small rocky worlds like our own, telescopes needed a boost. We began launching them into space, lifting them above Earth's atmosphere. This superhero team of space telescopes, Hubble, Chandra, Spitzer, Kepler, and Tess, were free from all the noise and interference from Earth's atmosphere, jittering air molecules, scattering light, clouds, and moisture. And the curtain parted on a galaxy crowded with exoplanets, giant ones, tiny ones, rocky and gaseous, deep frozen and superheated, Planets with two or three suns, super-Earths, mini-Neptunes, and worlds that were just plain weird, like nothing we had ever seen before. And now, a new marvel of technology joins NASA's team, the James Webb Space Telescope. Its infrared vision can peer into the atmospheres of exoplanets, expanding what we know about distant worlds. High on the list of odd exoplanets to observe is a terrifying place where it might rain glass sideways. 
This exoplanet is called HD 189733b, and it's a hot Jupiter, a giant gaseous world that hugs its star in such a tight orbit that its temperature is more than 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit. Its winds howl at more than 5,400 miles per hour. HD 189733b has been a favorite target of our space telescopes. Spitzer measured its temperature and winds. Hubble discovered that the planet's clouds are deep blue due to the raining glass or silicates. And Chandra observed its star in X-rays, watching the planet's shadow as it passed in front of the star. A much larger shadow than previously thought because huge amounts of the planet's atmosphere are evaporating into space. NASA's next great observatory, the James Webb Space Telescope, will also turn its supervision on HD 189733b. Like Spitzer, it sees in powerful infrared light, but Webb's vision will penetrate far more deeply into this planet's atmosphere and others than ever before. What will it find? Put it all together and it's a super team. Extraordinary telescopes, exceptional vision, and mind-expanding exoplanet discoveries. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, normally we would go straight into the Sky Guide, but I wanted to mention something from last month's Sky Guide, because on the Sky Guide last month, Ross wasn't too sure if the constellation Sagittar was an arrow or not. Unthinking on it after we stopped recording, I thought to myself, hang on a minute, that Sagittarius sounds like Sagittarius, and Sagittarius in the Zodiac is the archer. So if Sagittarius is part of Sagittarius, then it's got to be either the arrow or the bow. Now looking at the shape of it, it's basically a stick with like a, a V-shape coming off the end of it, which would look like an arrow rather than a bow. But you never know with uh, some of the constellations. No, they, look, know. they look nothing like what they're supposed to. <laughs> Those crazy ancestors of ours. <laughs> However, if, if Sagittarius was an angler or a fisherman instead of an archer, Sagittarius would most definitely be a rod rest. Yeah, could, we, we could work with both. <laughs> so I'm guessing I was right. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it, it's difficult when, when you've got so many uh, constellations out there and things. And they sound nothing like what they are either, or look anything like they are. Yeah. <laughs> you try to try to piece, especially the smaller ones, you kind of sit there and go, was, was that a dolphin or was it a fox? Or was it, the, was it a dog or an arrow? And the problem is you've got like Latin influences, you've got Greek influences, you've got Middle Eastern influences, and they've all got different names. And obviously it translates from the different pronunciations in the different languages. Some of it gets lost in translation. Yeah, lost or all mixed up. One of them is like lyra, which is the harp. If you look at the old Irish instrument, which is called a lyre, which is probably where it comes from, from the word lyra, which is a kind of a harp instrument. Because in the old days, it wasn't actually like the harp we think of today, the huge sort of thing, isn't it, where you sit down and pluck the strings. Mm. I think it's more of a sort of like, you just held it sort of in your chest, didn't you? Like yeah, a, yeah, kind of a, a U-shaped thing with strings on it. Yeah, almost like a, what do they, what do they call it? A bard, wasn't it? A bard yeah. back yeah. in the days, just poetry and singing. If you have a look at a lot of the paintings from the Renaissance era, you've got like cherubs, and cherubs quite often played these um, little harp oh. things. And they were flying in the sky as well. Mm. There we have it. Yeah. It's all down to history and geography and, and the sciences. They all sort of merge. <laughs> yeah. 
It's just everything, isn't it? Everything merges together to create whatever we talk about today. <laughs> now, there's one thing we, we must talk about, and it's yeah. been a big part of July. <laughs> and that's the James Webb Space Telescope. Back on the 11th of July, President Joe Biden, with the help of NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, unveiled a teaser of what the James Webb Space Telescope can do. Some of you might not have heard of Bill Nelson, but Bill Nelson is the new NASA Administrator, meaning the guy in charge of NASA. Bill Nelson was chosen because he, he knows a lot about the space industry. He became an astronaut himself in 1986, becoming the first politician in the House of Representatives to travel into space when he was a payload specialist on STS-61C on board Space Shuttle Columbia. If you look up his CV, it's, it's an amazing array of things that he's been involved in. And this was the reason why Joe Biden chose him personally to be the next NASA administrator. During this event, Bill Nelson introduced an image to the world, and this is what he had to say. If you held a grain of sand on the tip of your finger at arm's length, that is the part of the universe that you're seeing, just one little speck of the universe. You're seeing galaxies that are shining around other galaxies whose light has been bent, and you're seeing just a small little portion of the universe. You know, a hundred years ago, we thought there was only one galaxy. Now, the number is unlimited. And in our galaxy, we have billions of stars or suns, and there are billions of galaxies with billions of stars and suns. We're looking back more than 13 billion years. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, and that light that you are seeing on one of those little specks has been traveling for over 13 billion years. And by the way, we're going back further because this is just the first image. They're going back about 13 and a half billion years. And since we know the universe is 13.8 billion years old, we're going back almost to the beginning. There's another thing that you're going to find with this telescope. It is going to be so precise, you're going to see whether or not planets, because of the chemical composition that we can determine with this telescope of their atmosphere, if those planets are habitable. And when you look at something as big as this is, we are going to be able to answer questions that we don't even know what the questions are yet. This is what's happening. And it's because of this wonderful team joined, by the way, with our international partners, the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency. So this is an international endeavor. The teaser was of an image of a galaxy cluster called the Southern Massive Cluster Survey, or SMACS, 0723, as it appeared 4.6 billion years ago. The image is affectionately known as Webb's first deep field image, and it is truly amazing, isn't it, Ross? Absolutely stunning. I know we said that Hubble is, you know, it's not a, <laughs> it's not an upgrade or a replacement for Hubble. It's completely different. But you thought the Hubble one was amazing. 
And this one is just like, I've, I read that it's like the deepest and sharpest infrared image of the distant universe to date. And it has like, as he said, thousands of galaxies, including the faintest objects ever observed. And that was the first picture. He's, it's already got the faintest objects ever observed in its first pick. Yeah. So yeah. it's a baby at the moment. So imagine when it's 30 years old. How much are we going to learn? Hubble has gone over that now, and it's still producing some amazing shots. There was a shot that Hubble actually produced a couple of days after James Webb, and it was almost like saying, hold my beer. <laughs> I haven't finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys know how to tell the difference between Hubble and a James Webb image? It's pretty easy. If you look at stars on any of the pictures, whether it be Hubble or James Webb, you can see the difference. On the Hubble, on a star, we know how it kind of glares and you've got the like four prongs that come off like north, south, east, west on a compass. That will be your Hubble. It'll have four. But if you look at an image from James Webb, you've got six points instead of four. Reason for this is because of the shape of the segments on the James Webb. Um, because of the shape of them. Yep, and I didn't know that. You told me that the other day, didn't you? Yeah. You said it's a really easy thing to see, but a lot of people didn't know. So instantly now you can tell, is that Hubble or is that Webb? Ah, one, it's uh, amazing. <laughs> and two, all the stars will look different, which is cool. The day after that announcement, on the 12th, there was a live stream of a list of images that were also revealed by NASA. I was getting quite emotional during the live stream because it made me feel quite proud of TGP Nominal because we've interviewed many of the experts that were involved with the coverage. Dr. Michelle Fowler, who hosted the broadcast, was John's first solo interview as I was in transit to cover an event. Strangely, it was the event that I first met you. That is weird. <laughs> And then secondly, we had Dr. Eric Smith, who at the time was a James Webb program director when we interviewed him. And then we have Dr. Amber Strawn, who is the deputy project scientist for the James Webb and an astrophysicist. And she came on board to answer astronomy questions from our listeners, school kids and the UK Astronomy Facebook group members, which was awesome when she came on board for that. And then finally, there was Professor Mark McCorcoran, who is the Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration at the European Space Agency and a science working group interdisciplinary scientist for the James Webb Space Program. That's a lot to get in there. Mark is also a TGP nominal honorary crew member and has submitted his objects for the month in the past for Sky Guides. A whole host of famous people have been on the show. Yeah. So, the first reveal during the live stream I was really looking forward to because it was an exoplanet. Now, an exoplanet is basically a planet that's outside of our solar system. And this exoplanet is called WASP-96b. Not being an astrophysicist, I was a bit disappointed by the reveal because it only showed data. Now, I was kind of expecting to see an image. And during the press conference, you could really see the frustration on the faces of the experts because they were excited by the data, but the press wanted to see something physical. <laughs> so what do we know about WASP-96b, Russ? They said that they got a distinct signature of water, along with evidence for clouds and haze in the atmosphere. 
They say it's like a distant sun-like star. You can imagine why they've gone for that one. Mm-hmm. I've heard of it before, so they've obviously looked at it before with other instruments. Yeah. I've forgotten the, the other one. What's the other one that did it? Uh, Chandra, I think. You can get a hint of what is on it from the uh, light refracting around it and stuff, can't you? And how it comes back. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, so Webb's gone and had a proper good look at it now. And you just think, not only can it get distant galaxies and almost, you know, to the beginning of time, it can also tell us about a planet and what's actually in the atmosphere of this planet that is millions if not billions of miles away. This goes to show like the massive capabilities of this scope. Mad. So they're looking at a planet because they think, you know, there might be life there because there's water, clouds and haze. Even though, you know, it's a hot puffy gas giant, you just don't know what life's going to be like anymore. Yeah. So the fact that it's found water on another planet now. It's quite amazing, isn't it? This thing is what, over a thousand light years away from Earth mm. and it orbits its own star once every 3.4 days. Yeah, it's pretty quick. It's about half the mass of Jupiter and uh, it was discovered in 2014. So, yeah, quite an amazing find and you can imagine the scientists really being excited by this. Oh, yeah. but if you understood data and stuff, yeah. they would be bouncing off the walls. But, you know, as a... <laughs> a member of the public, you just look at it and go, oh, it's just a graph. Yeah. <laughs> Until it's explained to you. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No. I can understand the frustration of those scientists yeah, when... It's because the... we're visual creatures, aren't we? We That's like it. to see it with our own eyes. So the second reveal was an image of the Southern Ring Nebula, which I know nebulas and things is your thing, isn't it? It is, yeah. I do like them, because we do have one in the Northern Hemisphere as well, mm-hmm. and that's called the Ring Nebula, which we always talk about. It's in Lyra, and it's up in the sky at the moment, actually, so you can see it. And they're saying that this is a dying star, and it's like sending out almost like gas signals, almost like gas rings, like smoke rings. Yeah, it's kind of burning away from the centre outwards, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's kind of pushing it out and out and out and out, and creating all these really cool sort of like rings around it as it's getting pushed out. The great thing about this is the picture is stunning, and the amount of detail you can see of the elements and what's happening to the star and how and what's being pushed out. Webb actually found previously unseen galaxies behind this picture, so they weren't even looking for that. <laughs> And they found galaxies that they didn't even know were there behind it, further in the distance. Originally, they could see that there was a big star in the middle of of it. And now they've discovered that that is actually a binary star. (laughs) The thing is, we're now just going to have to go back and look at everything else that we've already seen. Yeah. Because it's going to completely change. You know, we're going to find new stuff in everything. It is totally amazing. Now, the third image was of Stephen's Quintet, which is the first compact galaxy group ever discovered in 1787. The group consists of four interacting galaxies. So you've got NGC 7317, NGC 7318A, NGC 7318B, and NGC 7319. And then alongside them, you've got a spiral galaxy, NGC 7320, and the galaxies are located in the constellation Pegasus. Which is in our skies. Yeah. So we might not have been able to see the southern ring. We can see the northern ring, which is our one, the ring nebula. But this, it is quite faint though, I did look it up. But I've heard of Stevens Quintet, so I do believe you can see it with a telescope. And they've actually said that they found like a, a, a huge shock wave or waves Because as one galaxy is passing through the other, it's creating all these massive sort of like gravitational shock waves and things going through it as they're kind of pushing against each other. And they've never seen that before. 
So we can actually look there in our sky and see, you know, maybe a little fuzz of a few little galaxies through our telescopes and then go onto Google and look at that and go, wow, that's actually what's there. That's what I'm seeing. And there's so much imagery that you can find on the NASA archives and they're in the most amazing detail. Some of them I wouldn't suggest trying to download because the file size is going to be huge. <laughs> the data is all there as well. They've been very open about it. You can find everything. To most people, the data won't mean a lot, but you can have a look at it and see if you can fathom it out. <laughs> I've said, uh, let's not put pictures of it on the notes, eh? Let's put a link. Because <laughs> those people will click on a picture, it will take years to download all that. <laughs> there are smaller versions of it which I, I've put on the, the web telescope webpage for it, and you can click on links for more information. And there's also a link where you compare some of the images that Hubble has taken and compare them with the uh, James Webb versions. Yeah, and they have like a line across them, don't they? So you can actually grab the line and move it back and forth across the image. Yeah, so there's links to that there that's really really interesting to see now the fourth and final image was of the carina nebula uh, once again nebulas are your thing yep it's the largest and brightest nebula in our sky and home to many stars larger than our sun and includes the milky way's biggest star which is wr25 in the i think it's called the trumpler 16 star cluster which is sadly southern hemisphere so if you go to Australia or anything like that, you can get to see it. But sadly, we can't in the UK skies, but we get to see it here. So it was discovered in 1752, and it has several nicknames, including the Grand Nebula, the Great Nebula, and uh, let's hope I'm going to get this right, because I think it's in Latin. <laughs> um, Eta Carinae Nebula. I think that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> I might start calling it the Carinae Nebula, because uh, my ex is called Carina, and I'm not allowed to mention it in the house, so... <laughs> <laughs> Oh like, uh, yeah, I'll have to call it something else. Le Grand Nebula. That would do me. I'm happy with that. Eta Carina. Eta Carina. <laughs> anyway, that's that's personal. So <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so the Carina Nebula is officially located in the Milky Way's Carina constellation. As you say, that's a constellation that's in the southern hemisphere. It's also quite near to the Sagittarius constellation. While it's very bright and large, as we've mentioned, it's still not that well known because of its location which can make it hard to locate in the sky especially in the northern hemisphere it's not going to happen it's quite bright with a magnitude of 1.0 plus pretty good actually that's pretty good which means it can be easily seen even without a pair of binoculars so um feeling quite jealous now of people down under because their skies are so different <laughs> yeah I mean, the picture you see is absolutely um, it's amazing, isn't it? It's like it's literally just like a ton of gas and dust. They say it looks like mountains and valleys, don't yeah, they? Yeah, it, it reminds me of the is it the pillars of creation? Yes, yeah. They say that the mountains are seven light years high. Wow, that's crazy, crazy. Seven light years it can take you seven light years to get to the top of that. Mad. Imagine how wide it is there. Yeah, and they said it's got it's got tons of like extremely mass hot sort of young stars, massive, huge things. Oh, you can tell that by the colours in it. Yeah, it's just there's there's loads going on there. They must be so like vibrant and crazy. Luckily, it's not close. <laughs> <laughs> 
NASA has just announced that apparently between May the 23rd and May the 25th, James Webb sustained an impact to the C3 segment, which is one of the, the little hexagon-shaped pieces of the mirror, which is located at the bottom right of the primary mirror. James Webb has 18 of these hexagonal-shaped mirrors, and each of them are 1.32 metres across. It's a big mirror. So that's 4.3 feet in diameter, just each of these little segments, I say little, each of these segments of the mirror. So you can imagine all of them together, it's huge. Now, the micrometeoroid that hit was smaller than a grain of sand, but in the whole scope of things, it's very minute even though it was probably travelling faster than a bullet Mm. so you can imagine something so tiny hitting a mirror at those kinds of speeds you'd have thought it would have destroyed it but micrometeoroid strikes are unavoidable when operating a spacecraft in those kind of environments uh, when you've got these missions in space the mirror was engineered to withstand a bombardment from dust-sized particles flying through extreme velocities in the environment where it was stationed at the second Lagrange point, or the L2 point as it's more commonly known. After initial assessments, the team found the telescope is still performing at a high level that it needs to do its mission, despite a marginally detectable effect in the data, which can be corrected by moving each of the different segments, because they can be moved independently. And then, obviously, when the images are sent back to Earth, they can be modified to get rid of any imperfections to the image. Thorough analysis and measurements are ongoing. Impacts will continue to occur through the entire lifetime of James Webb and such events are anticipated when they built it and tested it on the ground on Earth. Now, they tested it within an inch of its life. They tested it for literally everything and this is one of the reasons why it was delayed so long because it had to be tested at one department and then moved to another department who wanted to do their testing and then another department wanted to have a go at it and eventually when everybody had got all their testing done then it had to be moved to French Guiana where it was launched from and um, then eventually it was launched on Christmas Day last year. Here we are today. Yeah and wow there's a lot to come from that now. Well it's working perfectly and it can take sustainable hits. (laughs) from space debris let's just hope nothing bigger than that (laughs) yeah Yeah, an asteroid comes out of nowhere (laughs) wait another 20 years (laughs) the area that it's in that's very doubtful you're going to get anything that big which is one of the reasons why they chose it but there are a lot of factors that went into the region that they chose the distance away from the sun the temperatures everything that they need to get decent readings and uh, data back from it and it seems to be working perfectly so long live James Webb but also I will say this there seems to be a lot of not Hubble hating I won't say Hubble hating but Hubble is still a great telescope and it's still running and it will keep running until it no longer can run but it does work at a different frequency to James Webb so where James Webb focuses more on your infrared Hubble concentrates more on your ultraviolet so you could probably point them both at the same direction and merge the images together and see what you get from it thing is give it 50 years we'll be probably saying the same thing about Webb oh easy <laughs> next one comes along they're developing something now already if you think about it on your average probe 
or whatnot takes so many years to get into space before it actually launches into space. Yeah. So the technology for cameras and all kinds of stuff is probably out of date before it gets launched. Yep, the way technology is moving. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. I think it's time to talk about what's going on in August. What's actually going on in our skies, not the entire universe. <laughs> <laughs> right, so the August sky, go for as quick as I can for you. Uh, the planets are finally starting to move into the night sky from being morning objects, which is great for us because it means you don't have to get up at stupid o'clock to see them. So Saturn is coming up at about 9.30pm now, which is great. And it also reaches opposition this month, so it's going to put on a really good show. So that's like the planet of the month at the moment. Jupiter follows around 10.45pm, meaning, again, it's going to be up most of the night. Mars and Uranus are going to rise together at around midnight, and they are actually quite close together as they rise, but we'll go on to that a little bit later. With Uranus is going to be just above the red planet at the start of the month, so that's something you might be able to spot, hopefully. You're going to have to wait until about 3.45am for then Venus to pop up, and it's just going to be before the Sun, because that rises around about 5.30am. So after a few months of not great morning planets, we're finally starting to get a good view of all these celestial neighbours who are all going to start coming up for a good reasonable time for us. And they're going to get better as the months go on. There's also been a bright comet in the skies that has been spied. I don't think it's naked eye, it's probably binoculars. And they say it's well worth a peek this month. Have a look at it. It's called Comet C2017 K2 Panstars. And it's going to start in the constellation Operturus and it's going to end in Scorpius. So it's going to move across a little bit as it goes on. I do believe though it's moving down. So I think it's going to get worse as it goes down and the way we move. It's not going to be great as it goes on to the end of the month. But I've seen quite a few pictures of it in the Facebook group and it does look really cool. It came its closest to Earth on July the 14th and it was around about 172 million miles away. So it's still quite far <laughs> but although it's moving away now it is actually still brightening so it's getting brighter and brighter so you should be able to spot it with binoculars i've heard so we'll put a uh, obviously a picture up of whereabouts it is in the notes and hopefully you might go out and you might be able to see this comet which is quite cool you never know it might brighten even more so we start the month with the moon out of the way a great start to the month because it means you can take a peek at some of those galaxies that Webb saw maybe see if you can find them or some of the nebula that might have been washed out by the moon if we start on the second of the month, Mars and Uranus, as I said, they're close in the sky together. Finding Uranus can be quite difficult as you will need a telescope to see it because you can't really see it because it's so dim. You can't see it by naked eye and binoculars is nearly impossible, I think, but apparently you can. I've not yet, but tonight will be a great opportunity to have a spot because it's going to be just sort of like above left of the red Mars, rising around about midnight. It should be dark enough then and high enough. Probably I'd say around 2am is your best bet. It's just before the sun sort of will come up in a few hours and wash it out, so you might get an hour of darkness or so. So you might be able to have a look at Mars, and if you look on an app, you'll see there's probably a couple of stars. You can hop, hop, and there's Uranus right there, and you should be able to see it. So it's a really good time to try and see it, even though it's not at its best. It's a good signpost. Right, onto the fourth. Tonight's moon. Have a little peek there. 
there's going to be the X and V on the moon. We love this. It always comes up because it's quite a cool thing to see. It's always good for the kids to have a look for. So it's sort of like a, a clear obscure effect. It's going to be on a 42% waxing moon. It always seems to be best on a 42% lit waxing moon. And it's pretty much a few craters, but kind of like joining together and they create like an X and this little V as the sun like glints off their edges. And they're always straight down where the shadow is. So on this night, go out, have a look down the shadow and see if you can spot the X and V of these craters. We move forward to the 11th, take a look at the nearly full moon, and there's a new feature that I read about, and it's called the Rhina Gamma, which is a really bright, well, they call it a bright swirl. I'm not sure what it is. I think it's obviously a meteor's hit or something like that, and there's all dust, you know, there's all debris gone around. It's like a really bright swirl in the area called uh, Oceanus Procellarum. I'm thinking it might be pronounced Procolarum. Oh, could be that. Procolarum. <laughs> so you need to put a K in there. When I say K. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, we'll go with that one. So anyway, you'll see this Mare if you've got a moon map, it's just there. It's a big dark Mare and it's on the left part of the moon. And the object is actually best on or near a full moon, which we don't usually say that. Unlike most other features, we say look around the shadow parks, that's when they come out better. This one's actually best on a full moon. And next to this crater called Rhina, it was originally thought to be sort of like a lunar highland, but scientists eventually realized that it doesn't actually cast a shadow on the moon. So it's actually still a bit of a mystery how it was created but they think it might have been associated with localized magnetic field creating this swirly stuff. So it's not an impact. So it's just kind of like localized magnetic field creating this weird swirly white cool effect on the moon. So if you have a chance to have a look at that, it's the Rhina Gamma to the left of the crater Rhina. See if you can spot it on the full moon. As you can tell from my pronunciations, I didn't even know it was there. So it's something cool for us to see, hopefully. I can move to the 12th, a proper full moon is going to rise about 9.23pm. Saturn is going to be just above right of it. And then Jupiter is going to be rising not long after. And I believe that's going to be towards the left of it. So if you pop out after 11pm, you're going to see a really cool sort of thin triangle between two planets and the moon. And they're really cool in the sky. So pop out and have a look there. So moving on to the 14th, back to Saturn. Now Saturn reaches opposition tonight, meaning it's going to be nice and bright for us to view. Its rings will have visibly brightened over the month, because as the month kind of goes on to their peak, it's pretty much opposite us to the sun, which means it gets a, just a, a little bit more brighter for us to see. And this is definitely going to be our telescope object of the month, which we'll talk about again a little bit later, because it's going to look stunning. The rings are going to look absolutely awesome. and. The moon should hopefully moved slightly away from it, slightly more towards Jupiter. So you'll still have a little triangle in the sky this night as well. So hopefully on opposition, the moon will be there, but have moved away a little bit from Saturn. So it shouldn't get in the way too much from it. Not that it really affects planets that much. So you can see then, there's the moon. Go to the right, there's Saturn, 14th opposition. Have a look. The rings should look really bright and cool. Go to the 15th, we've now got an 87% lit moon, which is now closer to Jupiter. So it's moved even closer to Jupiter now. So it's gone past Saturn all the way to Jupiter and it's sitting to its left. You've got like three or four nights where you can actually go out, have a good look. So if one's cloudy or it's raining, you've got another night where you can go out and see these three objects in the sky together. Saturn's going to look good all month. So don't worry if you miss the opposition date, the actual, you know, the peak. All month is going to be really good to look at. So it's well worth a peak anytime. Moving on to the 19th, on the morning of the 19th, after midnight, the moon is going to be near the planet Mars and the bright blue cluster, the Pleiades. This is going to be a really cool sight, really nice early sight in our sky. And it's a great chance to maybe whip out your binoculars and view all the objects that are up. Now, this is going to be more spoken about in our binocular object guide of the month because there's loads. 
There's like almost like an upside down U of planets, moon, stars, clusters. So we can kind of sweep across the U and see all these cool things in the sky. So we'll get onto that. Moving on to the 20th. If you missed it yesterday, there's morning again, just after midnight. The moon's still going to be there. It's going to move slightly past the Pleiades this time, so the bright blue star cluster. Past Mars, past the Pleiades, but you've got a second chance tonight. If you didn't see yesterday's, so you can come out and have a look at all these cool three or four things up in the sky there, all together. Moving to the 23rd. Now, if you've got a telescope and you're into your minor planets, four Vesta reaches opposition tonight. Although you're only going to see a white dot of light, through the telescope as you're looking for its eyepiece it's still a really cool thing to spot and if you look actually over a few nights you'll see that it actually moves in relation to the stars over the month so if you find it keep an eye on where it is maybe draw you know a few stars around it on paper draw where it is go back a few nights later and then draw where it is now and you'll see it moving as it's going across you can actually see a minor planet and then kind of like hunt it and scan it and map it as it moves across the sky around us it does kind of rise with saturn at the moment and it's going to be slightly to the left of saturn but it is in the middle of no man's land. So there's no real big bright stars that you can use to find where it is. So you're probably best maybe starting a Saturn and doing a bit of star hopping across to one of the constellations. And it's gonna be just below Aquarius. So maybe you can use the star in Aquarius to find your way down to get to it. So that's a bit of fun for maybe the more sort of you know, advanced astronomer or someone just wants to see if they can find it and do a bit of star hopping. 26th, if you're up after 5 a.m. Venus will be rising and there'll be a very thin crescent moon as well just to its left hand side which is a really nice morning sight view out your window if you've got that sort of view out there your Venus there really thin sort of moon just as the sun's rising a nice you know sunrise all the colors coming up in the sky sit there sipping your coffee smile and think Do you know what I'm ready for the day ahead now that's really cool and then last but not least we've got the 28th see if you can now spot the thin moon but on the other side so this time it's going to be in the evening. It's going to move past the sun. It'll be a really thin evening moon and it's going to move past the sun and slowly getting higher and higher and brighter in the evening sky into the next month. So that's everything going on the month, which is quite a lot. <laughs> and I really went for it on that one. Naked Eye Object of the Month, obviously. Percy Admit Your Shower. Always cool, always amazing. Not always cloudy, luckily. Now the beauty of this event is you don't need any equipment. Just grab a coffee, hot chocolate, something like that. It's not cold out. So, you know, you don't have to sit out there freezing, waiting to try and see it. Grab the kids or the dogs, go out to your garden, find a field somewhere and just look up. It's all you need to do. Now it peaks on the 12th and 13th of the month. However, this month, unfortunately, there is a just past full moon, which is going to be right in the way. But we did enter the dust stream that we're going through that creates the showers in July. So it's not going to leave until the end of August. So the shower of meteors is going to slowly build up to the peak on the 12th and the 13th and then slowly dwindle afterwards back to normality. So you've got the whole month, really. Go out for the whole month and look up because you will see more than usual. So it's definitely worth peeking out. If you look up for the sort of W in the sky, which is the constellation Cassiopeia, the Vane Queen, just below her is the hero Perseus, 
which is uh, the area roughly where the meteors will be sort of radiating from. Have a look up, it's around about the ancient hero's head. So if you've got a thing that shows you where his head is, they'll be going from around there. Now Persis rises pretty much when the sun sets. So I'd say give it a few hours and wait for a little while because you've got to wait for the sun to set and Perseus to get higher. The higher it gets, the better it'll be. 10 p.m. onwards is probably good. Sort of look to the northeast. Predictions are always higher. They say around about 100, 120 per hour. But with the full moon up or nearly full moon, not going to be as many as that. It's the summer sky, so it's going to wash out some as well because it's, you know, the summer sky is brighter than the winter one. The most I've seen is about 65, 67, sort of over an hour or so. So still quite a lot. And that's 67 bits of comet that are actually burning up in our skies. It's like the tail of a comet that we're passing through, which is really cool. Binocular object, as I said, this is actually a host of objects. There's going to be a sort of almost upside down U. So I would say an N, but it doesn't really look like an N. It more looks like a U upside down. Around about 3am is probably the best time because that's when everything will be up. But you can see everything throughout the night up to them. And what you'll have is starting from the left towards the rising sun, you'll have the huge red giant star Betelgeuse, which is in Orion. And it's a huge giant star that's about to explode or die, already has exploded and died, but the light hasn't reached us yet. That's going to be peeking up from the horizon. To its right, slightly above, is another red star, which is Aldebaran, or Aldebaran, however you want to say it. And that's the bullseye in Taurus. Above that, you'll have Mars, another red sort of blob in the sky. By that, you'll have the moon. So you'll see a nice sort of light. I think it's about a crescent or half moon, depending when you look, just there as well. And then to the left of that, you'll have the bright Pleiades cluster. Now that's blue, loads of blue stars, really bright blue stars. You've got red, red, moon, blue, really cool. Further right, you'll then have Jupiter. Farther still, you'll then have Saturn. So it's a really cool, fantastic array of loads of different objects that you can just get your binoculars on and just sweep over the sky and see if you can spot each as they go. You will see Jupiter's four main moons. You will see Saturn's bright rings, especially at the moment because it's going to be in opposition. So just go have some binoculars and have fun. Just remember though, be careful because the sun will be rising. Don't look at the sun, it's not good for you. Telescope object, Saturn. Saturn's going to be awesome. I keep saying it because I'm really looking forward to it. I love Saturn, it's cool. Now the planet is going to rise and it's going to be up most of the night. I believe it was, I think I said about 9.30ish it starts rising. So you're going to have most of the night to get to see it before it sets over the month. Now because it's an opposition, it means it's directly opposite us from the sun in our orbit. So it appears brighter, especially its awesome ring system, which reflects light really well. It's made of like dirty water ice. So like snowballs almost floating around it. So they're going to reflect in the light really well. So we really get to see it. Uh, if you watch it over the morning, each time throughout the month, you actually see its rings will kind of like dip from one side to the other. As we spin on the earth, you'll see that actually they kind of go round from one side to the other side and tip towards us and to the other side. This gives you a great view throughout the night to the morning. It's going to kind of slightly move around in the sky as you're looking at it, which is quite good. Almost like it's floating on water or something. See if you can spot the gaps in between the rings, which you should be able to, even with a small telescope, you should be able to just see sort of like there might be a little gap in between two of the rings. You might even get to see its moon Titan, and it's going to be to its bottom right. Now just remember, reflectors, which are the mirror telescopes, they flip things around. So it may not be at its bottom right for a reflector, so remember that and try and work out where it'll be, but you should be able to see its moon as well. Now, last but not least, take a deep breath, our astrophotography object. Now I've chosen something called IC1396, which is the Elephant's Trunk Nebula. Probably because I saw the James Webb one of Carina, and it looks like that. 
It's a really awesome looking nebula. It's in the King's Head of Cepheus. That's the constellation. It looks amazing when photographed. Really, really cool. It's got like cones of gas that actually, funnily enough, one of them does look like a huge sort of elephant's trunk going across the sky. They say it's around 20 light years long. And within the cluster, it's like a cluster of young stars, which is actually designated the IC1396 is the cluster of stars. But within there, you'll see all the cloud anyway. So it's an easy way to find it on an app. All these stars are within the cloud and it's all of like glowing ionized gas. And the trunk itself is made from cooler interstellar gas, which then blocks out the light from the stars and stuff towards the Earth, which is behind it. So it actually stops all the light from behind it getting to us for us to see it. So it makes a really cool, nice, long, thin silhouette and gives, that's what gives the nebula its name. So it's really just loads of gas and stuff all around it blocking light to reach us. So it gives us a really cool view. They say it's around about 3,000 light years away. So if you get a picture of that, you've just captured light that left 3,000 light years ago. That's pretty mad. Have a snap, have a look. There's tons going on. Awesome. Now, before we go, we always like to ask what's going on for UK astronomy. So uh, what have you got coming up? Well, last month was a busy month. Considering it's not really astronomy season, <laughs> we didn't stop. We've now got some cool stuff coming up this month. The one that my wife's going to be mostly you know, excited by is we've got pigs and Perseids because it's at a pig sanctuary. My wife loves pigs. It's called Curly Tails. You know, it's in Milton Keynes. If you get to go and visit, oh, they're lovely. The couple are absolutely amazing. Their kids are cool. And you get to go around, feed the pigs. And finally, the pigs eat anything. They get all the leftovers from like Starbucks and things like that. <laughs> so they get like chocolate twists. And I'm sitting there thinking, hang on a minute. I'll have one of them. You don't really mess with a uh, 40 you know, stone pig for a chocolate twist. You just let them have it. <laughs> So it's at the pig sanctuary and we're going to go there. I'm going to do a talk. They're going to go around first and feed all the pigs and meet all the pigs and find out, you know, why they're there and what's happened to them because it's actually a sanctuary for them. Then I'm going to do a talk Then hopefully it'll be clear. We'll get to sit out, look for meteor showers. We'll have telescopes there. The van will be there, the mobile observatory, and we get to see all the cool stuff in the sky. So I'm really looking forward to that one. I believe it's on the 13th, which is perfect because it is the peak of the Perseids. So I happen to be off, which is great. Uh, we have live in the park as well, don't we? We do. Every year. We absolutely love that event. Unfortunately for us, I'm working the next day and I couldn't get it off. So I won't be doing the stars in the park in, at night, but I'll be there all day with the van. Hopefully some volunteers, might be some colouring in, things and bobs for us to do. And we'll be looking at the sun, looking at sunspots, flares, talking about anything you want to talk about. You can look over the van, see all the telescopes, and just generally chat and enjoy yourself. And there's, what's there? There's food, there's bands, there's Mark will be there. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully I'll be there this year. Interviewing people. Yeah, and um, catching up with you guys as well, because I haven't done that for a while. No, it's been, actually, to be fair, we haven't actually seen each other, have we? Not for a long Other time. Other than on a screen. <laughs> yeah. So that'd be nice. You get to meet both of us at the same time. Yeah. And then you can tell us how good the podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, uh, a meeting with the Parks Trust again, I think it was last week. There was a guy called Napier, I've forgotten his first name, I'm sure it's, it's either Charles or something like that, I probably got that wrong, but I do know his surname. So it's Napier, and he was an astrologer in the day, which technically was kind of an astronomer. I believe he was sort of like 15, 1600, something like that. They want to do an event that ties in astronomy and what he did. So astrology, we know, is you look at the zodiac signs and stuff and where the planets are in them and what constellations it means you know oh you're going to come into wealth and all these sorts of things he actually used it to try and like create prescriptions for ailments and stuff like that the person would come to him and on that day he'd look and go right you're here 
Jupiter's in blah, blah, blah. You've got a headache, you've got this, you need this. So he actually used the stars as almost like <laughs> prescription of what they had and how to deal with it. And I do believe they told me uh, one of the things they said was a certain thing, if you were feeling unwell, you had to get a pigeon, you had to cut it in half, and then wear each half as a slipper. <laughs> I can believe that. <laughs> you think, that's pretty grim, really. But we're going back to Shakespeare's day, Elizabethan times. They used to use the saliva of a frog to cure a sore throat. So when somebody says, oh, I've got a frog in my throat, nah. that's where that comes from. I think we're the day we're going to do it, I'm going to look at where the planets are and what constellation. I think I've already done it and I've sent it to them and I'm going to read up on him as well. The guy who's going to do it with me, he's actually going to dress up in character. Oh, wow. So he's going to stand there and be Napier and he's going to say what he thinks, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, well, did you know that Jupiter is in blah, blah, blah today? So what does that mean to you? And the great thing is, he didn't know about three of the planets that we know about today. So I can sit there and go, well, I bet you didn't know that there was three planets, were there? No, you're talking up to the rubbish now. So we're going to have kind of like a little bit of fun banter between each other for the kids and actually teach them about history and <laughs> the stars at the same time. So I think I think it'll be quite fun. So I'm really looking forward to it. You're talking out Uranus. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> talking out Uranus. So I go, no, but there is a planet. <laughs> <laughs> We've got uh, meetings with the guy who runs planetariums and I believe he's actually talking to Milton Keynes Shopping Centre about possibly having one there in one of the shoplets. I don't know how long for, I don't know if it's like going to be just for a while, a week or two over the summer holidays, where it's going to be permanent, or it's going to be six months, nine months. So basically in one of the empty stores, there'll yeah, be... Yeah, it sounds like it, yeah. I think someone mentioned it might be at the point. Ooh, that'll be good. Yeah, but I don't know, don't quote me on that. It's all kind of like, obviously they're still talking and planning and figuring it out, it's in its early days. The great thing about it is, I'm obviously going there because we're we're literally really close to actually getting one ourselves now. Really close. I can't really say much more about it, but I can see you next month, hopefully. He's going to show me all the software now, a bit more in depth and how it actually works. Because before I was just going around seeing them and what they were and what they did. Now it's like, right, we're actually this close to getting one. I better learn some more about it. <laughs> I think he's looking to perhaps have us... UK Astronomy and any of our volunteers actually go and run some of it for him or in partnership with him or he's got it there why don't we just go and use it yeah so we don't know yet what the you know because we've got our eye out all the details and figure it out but watch this space because you never know Milton Keynes might have its own planetarium there for good and then we've got our one hopefully by then which we can take elsewhere so we can teach even more people all around the place Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, Ross, once again, thanks for coming on board. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to me rabbiting on <laughs> about everything. As you can tell, it's been quite exciting, especially with James Webb and that going on as well. It's just going to get better and better. Always exciting when it comes to space exploration and astronomy. There's always something going on. 
So, as we mentioned there, hopefully I will be at Live in the Park. We're meeting up with the guys at UK Astronomy. There'll probably be some uh, volunteers there, so I'll probably get to meet up with some of those as well, because I haven't pretty much met many of them. I'm still in talks to get a guest on the show. That's hopefully coming up very soon. And yeah, I still need to talk with John, because John's been really busy lately, and try and get hold of his recordings from PAX East, the uh, video game convention that he went to earlier in the year. So we've all got that all to come before the end of the year. Yeah, who knows what else we've got coming up as well. I'm, I'm going to try and get in touch with a few people when I'm over in Aylesbury for Live in the Park and see if I can make some contacts for other bits and pieces along the way. And then, uh, yeah. problem is it's been all quiet for two years now suddenly it's all yeah it's all happening it's all go again all at once yeah so it's uh it's a struggle but uh it's fun at the same time yeah, so that we make fantastic. it work <laughs> so i always like to say the, the same thing at the end of each show and that's thanks for listening stay safe out there and we'll talk to you again real soon clear skies guys and remember there's a billion worlds in your back garden james webb's proven it well that about wraps it up for this episode of tgp nominal if you want to get in touch with us, then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.